Hello, everyone, and welcome to Litigation Radio. I'm your host, Dave Scriven Young. I'm a commercial and environmental litigator in the Chicago office of Picard and Abramson, which is recognized as the largest law firm serving the construction industry with 115 lawyers and 11 offices around the U.S. On this show, we talk to the country's top litigators and judges to discover best practices in developing our careers, winning cases, getting more clients, and building a sustainable practice. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast in your favorite podcasting app to make sure you're getting updated with future episodes. This podcast is brought to you by the litigation section of the American Bar Association. It's where I make my home in the ABA. The litigation section provides litigators of all practice areas the resources we need to be successful advocates for our clients. Learn more at ambar.org litigation. Each year, thousands of foreign trained lawyers take a U.S. bar exam. Law firms and their clients benefit from having these lawyers on their teams, providing an international perspective and background that they may have been missing. To discuss the journey that these international lawyers take and the barriers they face, I'm pleased to welcome Edsel Magante to the show. Edsel is senior counsel at the law firm of Parker, Milliken, Clark, O'Hara, and Samwilian in Los Angeles, where he focuses his practice in the areas of commercial litigation, labor and employment, including employment law counseling, and appellate practice. Prior to joining the firm, Edsel gained significant experience in international tax and business law practice from his employment at a big four accounting firm's Philippine office. He previously clerked at the Supreme Court of the Philippines and taught conflict of laws and international economic law at a top-tier Philippine law school. Welcome to the show, Edsel. Hi, Dave. Thanks for having me. Sure. So let's just start from the very beginning because I want to kind of take our listeners through kind of the, your journey in becoming a lawyer, uh, both in the Philippines, but as well in, as in the U.S. So did you always want to become a lawyer? No, not always. As a child, I thought I wanted to be a doctor. It was a very popular option back then in the Philippines. And it was such a big deal because, you know, doctors heal diseases and all that. It was my father who wanted me to be a lawyer because he wanted it for himself. But poverty kept him from pursuing that dream. So he sort of wanted to pursue that dream vicariously through me. He did a good job of convincing me that law school was the right path for me. So come senior year in high school, I was sure I was going to law school and I just had to figure out what program I wanted to enter for college and what university do I want to take that program in. I picked a university that had a great debate team back then because I thought I wanted to develop some advocacy skills and that would give me a great opportunity to do that. So I went to the University of Santo Tomas and I became an international varsity debater there. I competed in a lot of international competitions abroad. The most fun part of it for me was travel. I represented my university and to a certain extent the country in different international competitions held abroad in neighboring Asian countries and Australia. At one point, my team won the Asian debate championships. We emerged as the champion and I was a judged best speaker of the championship. This was close to the end of my third year in college. So that was sort of a highlight of my college experience for me. And after finishing college, I applied to what was then known as the best law school in the Philippines, at least based on my research, and I still believe it is, um, the Ateneo de Manila University School of Law. That's where I 
went for law school and it's a four-year program. So in total, to be a lawyer, you have to study for eight years in the Philippines, four years for college and another four years for law school. Got it. And then you mentioned it was your dad's dream for you to go to law school. What did your father do for work? He was a certified public accountant. He wanted to be a CPA lawyer, but after earning his CPA license, he had to help support his family. Got it. So you went to law school in the Philippines. So what is the difference between kind of the Filipino legal system, uh, between that system and the U.S. system in your mind? Well, not that many people are aware of this, but the Philippines is a former U.S. territory. So there is substantial American influence in the legal and educational systems of the Philippines. On the legal system front, the main differences would be that there is no federalism and there are no jury trials. Other than these, the two legal systems share substantial similarities. First of all, law school is taught entirely in English in the Philippines. All the laws are written in English and all court proceedings are conducted in English. So we use Westlaw and LexisNexis from day one in law school. Also, the Philippines is a hybrid civil law and common law jurisdiction. Basically, you have statutes that provide the basic framework and then you have court decisions that clarify or supplement the statutes, which is kind of like where the U.S. is at, don't you think? Oh, absolutely. And you said there was no jury trials. It's just everything is is decided by a judge? Yes. Everything is a bench trial, basically. Got it. That's interesting. And then do you have like um, like an arbitration mediation programs out there as well, or is it just pretty much just trials? Yes, we do. We do. We have a thriving arbitration practice, for instance, in construction disputes and other types of disputes. Also, I want to add that the Philippine Constitution and many of the country's commercial laws derive principles from U.S. legal tradition, so much so that the Philippine Supreme Court has ruled that in appropriate cases where there is no local law on point, U.S. precedent is persuasive. Got it. And so the next part of your journey is that you ended up in London, right? What what did you end up doing there? I did an LLM in corporate and commercial law at the London School of Economics under a full-ride British Evening Award. So what did you learn at the London School of Economics that you kind of applied to what you do today as a lawyer? Well, when I was at the London School of Economics, I did an LLM that was focused on corporate and commercial law. So I took courses in mergers and acquisitions, competition law, and commercial arbitration. To a certain extent, my course in commercial arbitration still informs a lot of the decisions I make in cases I handle that are either already in arbitration or are going to arbitration. Issues like choice of law, forum, and enforceability of an arbitration clause are very familiar to me because I've studied these things at the London School of Economics. Got it. And then what did you learn in in England in terms of the differences between, you know, their culture and legal system there? I I presume it's much different than the legal system and the legal proceedings that, that you witness in the Philippines. Sure. First of all, in terms of culture, I think the Brits really observe tradition manners and formalities. And you can see that in the way that they commemorate events or tradition like the guy folks or anything that has to do with the royal family. I think that kind of 
faithfulness to tradition also translates to more formal court proceedings and to a greater emphasis being placed on proper court decorum. In terms of how legal analysis is done, just based on my LLM program, I don't think it's that different from how legal analysis is done in the Philippines and even in the U.S., Basically, when you're faced with a statute, you break it down into its constituent elements. And if there's any applicable case law, try to see how that case law clarifies or supplements your understanding of the statute. I think that basic framework applies across many legal traditions. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. And then, as I understand it, the next step in your journey is that you went back to the Philippines and you worked for Ernst & Young. Is that correct? That's correct. And so what were you doing there for Ernst & Young? At Ernst & Young, I practiced international tax and business law. Basically, after my UK LLM, I was looking for an opportunity to practice in an international setting or join a firm that has cross-border practice areas. And I found Ernst & Young to fit the bill. So when I returned to the Philippines, I accepted a job offer at Ernst & Young to be an associate director of their international tax practice, I had the opportunity to advise big international corporations on the business and tax implications of their cross-border transactions and deals. I also interpreted tax treaty provisions and came up with advice on how to harmonize domestic legal requirements from the home countries of multinational corporations with specific legal requirements in the Philippines and under the framework of an applicable tax treaty, if that's the case. I just have to mention, so it was interesting in your story that your dad was a CPA, wanted you to become a lawyer, and then you became a lawyer at an uh, international accounting firm. So was that kind of by accident, coincidence, or was that something that you intended to do? It was not something that I planned to do before I went to the UK for my LLM. It was, it was not purely by accident either, but it was just something that made sense when I came back from the UK and started exploring practice settings in the Philippines that would offer the opportunity to advise on cross-border transactions and disputes. So you eventually came to the U.S. receiving your LLM at Harvard. So you've seen law school or law school settings in the U.S. and in England and the Philippines. Can you describe kind of, you know, what you saw as kind of the differences between them? Which which system did you like better, frankly? I can answer that question by looking at three features of a legal education system. The first is classroom experience. The second is legal analysis as part of the method of instruction. And the third is the way they do exams. So in terms of classroom experience, the use of the Socratic method in the Philippines is quite intense. (laughs) Basically, you are assigned tons of readings every day and are expected to have memorized all the assigned statutes and cases with a deep understanding of their nuances before you come to class. In each class... Random people get called on to recite on any part of the assigned readings, and every recitation is graded. Everything counts toward your final grade. 
Wow, that sounds intense. In the UK, participation is largely voluntary. It's quite rare that people would get randomly called on to speak on anything. In the US, that can happen, but usually the recitation is not graded. Second, about the way that the instruction is given and legal concepts are analyzed, I think it's the same across all legal systems. Basically, whatever area of law you're trying to study, you, you start with a general framework, and that could be any statute or rule of law that already exists as an established system in that area of law. You try to break it down into its constituent parts and see if anything supplements it, such as case law or regulation. I think that's the same. Third, in terms of how they do exams, in the Philippines, exams are very doctrine-specific or rule-specific. The approach is there is a precise answer to every legal problem. So if any hypothetical or specific question is asked in an exam, you have to have read the exact case that provides the answer Otherwise, your answer, no matter how long it is, no matter how many issues it identifies, may not be worth anything, depending on how kind your professor is. In certain instances, at most, you'll get two out of 10. And that's like a pity score for effort. In the US and the UK, you are allowed to identify issues, weigh both sides, and reach a justifiable conclusion. As long as you have something to support it, you're good. So that's sort of the difference in terms of how exams are marked and how students are trained. You know, I, I should have asked this from the beginning, I guess. So in order to practice in the U.S., you have to take bar exam, obviously. But what is the requirement in order to kind of sit for the bar? Was it, you, I assume you had to take your LLM, you know, at, in, in, U, in the United States in order to sit for the bar? No, I didn't come across any requirement of that sort. I just had to submit to the State Bar of California a certification of being admitted to practice law in the Philippines. And so I applied as a foreign attorney to sit for the bar. Okay, got it. I didn't realize that was an option. That, that's cool. All right. Well, let's talk about kind of your practice in the U.S. since you've went to Harvard and, and was admitted to, to practice. So I think a lot of people, uh, you know, wonder, you know, you have this international background. How has that background kind of helped you to practice law in the United States? How has that perspective helped you to, to, to practice, you know, what you do here? I think in general, it's the training and experience that helped me a lot. I was already doing a lot of litigation in the Philippines before I even started clerking in the Supreme Court of the Philippines, and thereafter started looking for opportunities to study abroad. So the experience that I got in the Philippines still informs my day-to-day -day decisions. Like if there is an issue in, a, in an area of law that I'm encountering for the first time in the U.S., but this kind of substantive or procedural issue is something that I've seen before, at the litigation firm I joined after law school or at the Philippine Supreme Court where I drafted court decisions, then I have a general framework for approaching that particular issue. 
like I said earlier, in terms of legal analysis, I think the way it's done in the U.S. and the way we did it in the Philippines when I was still there is practically the same. Basically, you look for a statute or any black letter law that governs the specific issue and thereafter try to see if there's any case law that clarifies your understanding of black letter law. Sure. And I was wondering if your international background has held you back in any way, like what obstacles did you have in terms of uh, coming to practice in the United States? In the beginning, the challenge was explaining to people and prospective employers how my training and experience from the Philippines are relevant and would help me advance in any area of practice in the United States. I noticed that some people still have residual notions of legal training and experience being jurisdiction limited, meaning if you've never received formal training in U.S. law or California law, then you're not going to be as qualified as someone who has a USJD. The fact is that may no longer be the case for the most part because a lot of foreign attorneys have entered the U.S. market and in their own right are currently thriving. So I think that the only challenge that my international background has ever posed was the fact that I had to explain how my prior education and experience from the Philippines should count for something. <laughs> sure, and that ma- that makes sense. And what would you tell folks who are you know interested in hiring international lawyers about you know lawyers like yourself? You know, if you you have an international background, how that would be helpful in what they do kind of day to day, giving that international perspective to influence what they do. For context, I think. We have to consider that I am speaking from the perspective of someone who finished his legal education in a country that used to be a U.S. territory. So my perspective and experience may not be the same as any other foreign attorneys. But that said, I think if you have something to bring to the table, it would be up to you to highlight what it is and explain it. If there are any similarities between the U.S. legal system and your own country's legal system, you need to be able to outline those similarities and explain them in such a way that would make your foreign background attractive. Also, you have to be a little flexible about what you want, because what you want to do right now may not be what the market needs. In the beginning, you may have to take a job that just pays the bills which may not be your dream job, but it's a start. Know that market needs shift over time. So even if you don't get to do what you want right now, you may be able to do it later. Well, that's great advice. And we are coming up to our the end of our time together and um, just wanted to bring uh, listeners up to kind of the present moment and where you are in your career. I understand that you do a lot of appellate practice in your firm now. At my firm now, I do some appellate practice Although my practice is still state court heavy, I handle a lot of commercial litigation matters and employment matters that are either in litigation or arbitration. In rare instances that some of these matters reach the appellate stage, we have the capacity to assist in that as well. What got me into employment initially was just 
market demand. And after I entered the field, I realized it's really interesting and I could stay in it. Now at my firm, I get to combine employment litigation with other types of litigation, such as contract litigation, real estate litigation, and even First Amendment litigation. I also get to engage in appellate practice in appropriate cases where something needs to be appealed and the client wants us to handle it. Excellent. And for folks who want to reach out to you for advice in terms of international lawyers who want to come to the U.S. or advice generally, uh, what's the best way for uh, folks to reach out to you? They can send me an email at emagante at dmcos.com or at edzilmagante, my full name, no space, at gmail.com. Perfect. Well, Edsel, thank you so much for sharing your perspective. Really appreciate you uh, getting a little personal and, and honest about kind of um, the, the barriers that you faced and, and some of the rewards of, of coming to the U.S. and practicing here. So thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you so much, Dave. It's been a pleasure. And now it's time for a quick tip from the ABA litigation session. So let's welcome back Daryl Wilson to the show. Daryl is Assistant General Counsel in the Litigation Center of Excellence at Honeywell International Incorporated. Great to talk to you again, Daryl. Great talking with you, Dave. I believe you're going to be talking about tips for getting involved with pro bono work. That's correct. All right. Well, let's get your quick tip. Thanks, Dave. Today, I want to talk about the importance of giving back. Oftentimes, we get very wrapped up in our normal day-to-day routines and providing counsel to our paying clients that sometimes we forget about those who don't have access to justice due to their socioeconomic status. The ABA Model Rule 61 states that every lawyer has a professional responsibility to provide legal services to those unable to pay. A lawyer should aspire to render at least 50 hours of pro bono public legal services per year. Um, As I was looking through the ABA, I saw an article written by Richard Tabora, who is an associate in the Los Angeles office of Greenberg Chart, and he provides great tips. And um, I will use some of those as a focus for today's tip segment about pro bono and the opportunities to give those. The first tip is that you should pick a cause, organization, or work that you feel passionately about, or at least some affinity towards. And I would say, like, as we go and we look for pro bono opportunities, we should always look for those things that we may not do in our normal day-to-day basis um, on our jobs at law firms and be able to provide those services to individuals. And that may come in the form of, like, housing clinics, uh, domestic abuse situations, family law, offering up opportunities to provide uh, wills for here. Those are different pro bono opportunities that one can take in order to be able to just kind of get outside what they normally do and be able to provide access to those who may not necessarily have the access to a lawyer to be able to provide those services. The next tip is that we shouldn't be scared to try something different. A lot of times we get into our practice areas and we become, you know, lawyers that may become subject matter experts in a certain practice area. And we have an idea that we may want to venture out into a new area of law that we may not necessarily get that opportunity to do in our firms. So or our other legal organizations that we work at. So I As this part of this tip, I just kind of invite lawyers to consider areas that they may be interested in and see if there may be pro bono opportunities available to them to be able to kind of get that practice that you may be looking for to kind of develop your skills and be able to add to your value as a lawyer and add to your value of the areas of practice that you normally may not have gotten the opportunity to do. 
The next tip I say is you want to make sure that you have the appropriate time and resources available to be able to provide those uh, pro bono services. We know that sometimes these are unpaying clients, but we also want to make sure that we provide them with the best zealous advocacy that we can in our everyday practice. So before you take on an pro bono matter, you want to make sure that you do have the time that you can commit to that pro bono client, to that issue, and make sure that you're providing that zealous service to your pro bono client. Next, you want to uh, also set the expectations when you have that um, pro bono client, because we know that the pro bono client often can be someone that may have a, a host of issues that they may be looking for a lawyer to assist with. So when you engage that pro bono client, you want to make sure that you set that expectation with that client to let them know exactly what the matter is that you'll be assisting them with and how you'll be assisting them. I say the best way to do that is, you know, sometimes when you get on a call, you can discuss how you will be helping them and the areas that you'll be providing assistance in. And then once you get off that call, you may want to follow it up with an email or written correspondence in the mail to let that client know exactly what it is and what the scope of work that you'll be doing for them when you provide that pro bono service. Next, I want to tell you to take the opportunity to do pro bono as a rewarding opportunity. You never want to be in a space where you say, oh, this pro bono work is, you know, a task for me. You want to take this as a awarding opportunity to give back to those that may be less fortunate or those who may not have access to justice or access to lawyers or those who may be in an underprivileged or underserved uh, community. You want to take that as an opportunity to know that you are doing good and that you are putting your degree and your expertise to good work by providing pro bono services to someone who may not have had the opportunity to have those services provided to them or be in a position to be able to pay for those legal services. And lastly, I want to say that as you go through your pro bono opportunities and you look to provide services to those who may not be able to have access to justice, that maybe you want to talk to your employer and see what type of credits you may be able to get for providing uh, pro bono services to those that may be in need. And so as we go about our journeys in this legal profession, we want to always be in a space to give back. And that is why I have offered this tip today to discuss about pro bono and being in a position to give back so that you can also feel rewarded in yourself. And those who may not have access to a lawyer will have that access through you by providing that pro bono services. Well, great, Daryl. Thanks so much uh, for sharing those tips and thanks for being on the show today. I appreciate it, Dave. Well, that's all we have for our show today, and I'd love to hear your thoughts about today's episode. If you have comments or a question you'd like for me to answer on an upcoming show, you can contact me at dscrivenyoung at gmail.com and connect with me on social. I'm at AttorneyDSY on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. You can also connect with the ABA litigation section on those platforms as well. But as much as I'd like to connect with you online, nothing beats meeting in person at one of our next litigation section events. So please make plans to join us at the Federal Environmental and Energy Litigation Updates Regional CLE Program in Washington, D.C. on May 9th. Attendees will hear directly from leaders in the U.S. EPA, Department of Justice, Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, and Securities and Exchange Commission with the latest environmental and energy enforcement and litigation updates and initiatives. To find out more and for registration information, go to ambar.org slash E-E-L-C. If you like the show, please help spread the word by sharing a link to this episode with a friend or through a post on social and invite others to join the show and community. If you want to leave a quick review over at Apple Podcasts, it's incredibly helpful, or even a rating at Spotify Podcasts is super helpful as well. 
And finally, I want to quickly thank some folks who make this show possible. Thanks to Michelle Oberts, who's on staff with the litigation section for her help, as well as our fabulous producer, Rich Rivera. Thank you, Rich, for all of your hard work. Thanks also goes out to my fellow co-chairs of the litigation section's audio content committee, Josh Jones and Tyler True. Thank you to the audio professionals from Legal Talk Network. And last but not least, thank you so much for listening. I'll see you next time.